Good day, everybody. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together as we continue our study of Isaiah. Key says, your title this morning, we'll have to wait for the end times. Is that a question or a comment? Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. If you don't know what the title is, you'll have to look and uh, and see. So we are working our way through the book of Isaiah, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off yesterday in uh, chapter 30. And I want to set your, your frame of mind like we have been and think about the Jew who is reading this oh, centuries after the fall of the northern kingdom and the fall of the southern kingdom. So remember, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Babylon conquered the southern kingdom in 586 BC. So Isaiah is prophesying before those events. But then he wrote it all down and someone compiled it and put it in this, uh, what we call the book of Isaiah. And the Jews had this for forever. And we still have it today, right? To, to read and see what God had done and see what God had predicted. And I'm, I'm pointing that out to think about this as a Jew who say, say is living, you know, one or two centuries before Christ, obviously he doesn't know Christ is coming, doesn't know when Christ is coming exactly, but for him to be able to go back and read what God had told the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, and to see that it all happened exactly as God said, would be pretty impacting on their trust that he would fulfill the future promises. Does that make sense? You following me? So as they went back, so the Jews, if you say it's the second, second century BC, and you read that God said this, these things were going to happen to Assyria, for instance, and they did, and this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem, and it did, that would give them more uh, faith, stronger faith, in the things that had not yet come to pass. So, or at least it could give them that. So let's uh, let's pick up with that in mind, so to speak. So chapter 30, verse 27, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place, burning in his anger and dense in smoke, or is smoke. His lips are filled with indignation, and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck. So you see God described in, in human terms. Theologians call this anthropomorphisms. He's taking the form of a man and, and he's all in, right? His, his whole, whole being is involved here. Uh, he's got smoke. He's angry. His lips are filled with this, this ire, this fury. His tongue is a consuming fire. And we've seen smoke and fire before, right? God led Israel as a pillar of smoke and fire. Now it's anger. His breath, it's, a, it's an overwhelming torrent. He's, he's mixing metaphors there. The wind coming from his mouth is like this uh, flooding water. And it reaches, takes all the way up to the neck of somebody. Well, who? The nations. To shake the nations back and forth in a sieve. And to put in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads them to ruin. The Lord is furious and he's coming to 
shake the nations up and lead them to a place where they will be destroyed. You will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. Well, who's the you here? Well, these are the people who trust in the Lord. That's what he's been saying through this whole thing, right? Don't trust in other nations. Don't trust in your own defenses. Trust in me. And those who trust in me will be planted on a rock and be protected. Everyone else is going to get swept away in the storm that uh, the Lord brings. And the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard and the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger and in the flame of a consuming fire in cloudburst, downpour, and hailstones. Uh, again, the mixing of metaphor, which Isaiah loves. Uh, he's, his arm, he's, he's coming with an arm to crush people. He's, he's a flaming fire, consuming fire, he, re- repetition of that. And if you've ever been around wildfire, uh, it can just destroy so much property in a hurry. Consuming fire is a good description. But then he changes the metaphor to the uh, the hailstones, the downpour, the cloudburst. This intense storm just wipes out everything. And again, he's used this imagery as well to describe his his fiercity. So who's receiving all this? For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified. So God is pouring out his wrath on Assyria. So Assyria, uh, in this context, has taken down the northern kingdom and is pressing in on the southern kingdom. And Isaiah is telling the Jews in Jerusalem, don't be afraid of them. Call upon me. Trust in me. I'm going to take Assyria down. When he strikes with the rod and every blow of the rod of punishment, which the Lord will lay on him, will be with the music of tambourines and lyres and in battles, brandishing weapons, he will fight them. So you all, if you trust in me, you'll be singing in joy and they are going to be wiped out. For Topheth, that's a part of Assyria, has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. So Assyria is going to be taken care of. Trust me, the Lord says. I've got them. They, they have been working toward building themselves up as a pile of wood that when the fire comes through, they'll be consumed. So again, think of of being a Jew generations after the fact and reading in the history books, knowing the story of your people, that they were afraid. In real time, they were terrified of Assyria, right? Assyria was taking over the world. And your brothers to the north in in the northern kingdom, Samaria being the capital, had been conquered and Uh, Those that weren't killed were let off into exile. And now they're pressing in on Judah and Jerusalem. And God is telling them, I'm not going to let Assyria take you down. And the Jews later on could read back and say, that's exactly what happened. Assyria was overcome. By whom? By the Babylonians, right? Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, 
they were the instrument of this consuming fire, this hailstorm, this this torrential wind that destroyed Assyria. And now you could look back at that and say, whoa, the Lord is in charge of nations. The Lord is in charge of history. The Lord knew it was going to happen, but he didn't just have the knowledge, like looking in a crystal ball. He determined what was going to happen. We can trust him for future promises. And today we should learn the same thing from this, right? So chapter 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. We've already seen this. There were those in Judah and Jerusalem. The leaders were forming alliances with the Egyptians, thinking that the Egyptians could save them from Assyria. If they team up together, they can overthrow Assyria. God pronounces a woe. This is the fifth woe in this section. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. And we talked about this yesterday, but for our own application, of course, it's very obvious. Are you trusting in the government for your deliverance? Don't do it. Uh, Lon followed up. I, I saw that he had a, a comment at the end that uh, came in after I closed down, closed uh, closed off the program, and then he uh, made the comment on the video. Um, we have made gods out of our government. This is the, the government has presented themselves as our provider and and uh, sustainer, protector, and. Christians even have gets, gotten sucked into that and trusted and entrusted ourselves to the government. And that's wrong. The government, again, the point I was making yesterday is here in America, you know, how many congressmen and women do we have? Both houses. We've got the executive branch, the judicial branch, and that's just the federal level. And then we've got all the, the state and local levels. How many of them are unbelievers? A lot probably a majority. And they are greedy. They are foolish. They are easily persuadable. They're bribable. Uh, They're immoral. I mean, to be a politician these days is basically, uh, if you call someone a politician, you're basically calling them what? A liar, a hypocrite, someone who's getting getting wealthy on the backs of others. I know that's not fair to every politician. I know there are exceptions. But it has become such a, a farce. We don't trust them. And rightfully so. They've earned that reputation. Even so-called conservatives, you know, the right wing, the Republicans, those who claim to stand on constitutional grounds and so on, they've had power Republicans have had the House and the Senate and the White House and done nothing, done nothing with it to really change anything. Well, they've earned the reputation. And we as Christians are fools and at least knocking on the door of idolatry to put our hope and our trust in the government. They are not your savior. They are not your protector not your provider, the Lord is. We must not be like uh, these Judeans who trusted in Egypt, 
God pronounces a woe, a curse upon them. And again, imagine yourself being a Jew centuries later saying, oh yeah, what happened to the Jews who trusted in Egypt? Didn't turn out well for them. Yet he also is wise. You think the Egyptians are wise? Well, the Lord is wise and he will bring disaster. And he does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now, the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand and he who helps will stumble. That's the Egyptians. And he who is helped will fall. That's the Judeans. And all of them will come to an end together. See what God is predicting here? If you call out to Egypt for help, I'm going to take both of you down. My people in Jerusalem, you reach out to Egypt and you trust in Egypt. I'm going to take down Egypt and I'm going to take you down. You're all going to fall. For thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, and he will not be terrified at their voice nor disturbed at their noise, so will the Lord of horse, horse <laughs> so will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. Some interesting things here. So he's ultimately talking about how he's going to fight on Zion and protect his people, the remnant. He is not going to allow the Assyrians to come and conquer. But those who trust in Egypt will be taken down. So he's, he's describing himself, the Lord is describing himself here as a young lion growling over his prey. Right? He's roaring and he's, he's licking his chops as he sees the fresh, fresh meat coming. That's what the Lord is going to do to the Egyptians and to the Judeans, the Jews who trust them. And he says, look, like the lion against which a band of shepherds is called out. Right? Shepherds are the protectors of the sheep. And the lion is now licking his chops over them, the shepherds. Do you see the irony here? The shepherds of Judah should protect the sheep and they should call upon the Lord but instead, they're calling upon the Egyptians, and they're no match for the lion, who is the Lord, who's going to take them down, and he will protect Zion. Interesting irony here that these shepherds are now pray for the lion, uh, who is God. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. Egypt can't, but God can. He can protect them. He will protect and deliver it and pass over and rescue it. So then here's the appeal. Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. Don't call upon Egypt. Call upon the Lord. For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin. I think the every man here is every man who calls upon him. I don't think it means every single individual because we know that most of them didn't trust the Lord. And the Assyrian will fall by a sword, not of man, 
and a sword not of man will devour him, so he will not escape the sword, and his young men will become forced laborers. God's going to take down Assyria. Don't worry about them. Don't be afraid of them. Trust me. His rock will pass away because of panic, and his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So here's the... the uh, declaration of judgment coming upon Assyria and the, the appeal to trust the Lord and not the Egyptians. And then chapter 32 unannounced, just like we've seen over and over and over again, we have the vision of the coming King. And here's why I was stressing at the beginning as the Jew who is after the fact here can look back and say, yes, God did exactly what he said he would do. He destroyed Assyria. Assyria did not conquer Jerusalem, but eventually Jerusalem was conquered and most of the people were killed or exiled, but some, the remnant, were preserved. God was faithful and powerful enough to do that. Well, now he's promising a king. The king had not come yet, right? If you're a Jew living 100 years before Jesus, for instance, the king had not come yet. This king that we're about to read about, he hadn't come. He hadn't appeared on the scene. But if God was faithful and had the power to fulfill his predictions hundreds and hundreds of years ago with the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, I can trust him that this promise of a king will come to pass as well. So here it is. Behold, a king will reign righteously. There's a king coming and he's going to be on the throne, and he's going to reign with righteousness and justice. And princes will rule justly. This statement fascinates me because of what we know and what we don't know. We know who the king is. We know that he has come and that he is reigning. That's Jesus. He's on his throne today. August 30th, year of our Lord Jesus, 2022. Jesus is reigning. But what does it mean? What is Isaiah predicting here that princes, rulers, will rule justly? That's plural. Fascinating. Fascinating. I'm just going to leave that out there for now. Now, here's where I'm not sure why the NAS translates it this way. This says, each will be like a refuge. That makes it sound like he is talking about these princes. But the, the word each here is not in the Hebrew or the Greek. It's a man. I think he's talking about the king. A man will be like a refuge from the wind. That king will be the refuge, right? That's Jesus. He will be a shelter from the storm like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. All right, that's, that's our Lord. He's the one we take shelter from the storm with. We, we build our house on this rock, right? On his words. Uh, he's the one that provides the, the refreshment when, when we're parched. And uh, the, the water we need when we're thirsty. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded and the ears of those who hear will listen. 
a contrast from the prediction that uh, their eyes are blind, even though they have eyes, they can't see and they have ears, they can't hear. God's keeping them from knowing the truth and understanding the truth. But when this king comes, there are those who will not be blinded and they will hear and listen and understand. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth. So there, previously they made snap decisions, but now they will have the ability to understand true knowledge. Before, there's the tongue of the stammerers, they, they, they stuttered, but then they will hasten to speak clearly. So their eyes are going to see, their ears are going to hear, their mind will understand, their mouths, which formerly couldn't speak truth clearly, now they will. And in that day, when that happens, no longer will the fool be called noble. And this whole section here is about politicians. When this king comes and reigns in righteousness, the fool will no longer be called noble. And the rogue or the, the scoundrel, the knave, will not be spoken of as generous. We're not quite there yet, are we? This is what Keith means, that we'll have to wait till the end times. Maybe, maybe, but we're certainly not quite there yet, whether this is end times or, uh, you know, we're still working through all that, but the timing of it is, is the, is the un, unknown here, but we're not here. <laughs> um, there are lots of quote-unquote nobles who are foolish here in the United States of America. And they're considered these, these scoundrels in Congress and in the White House. They're spoken of as generous, aren't they? Oh, thank you. Oh, great lords who steal our money through excessive taxation and inflation. And now you're giving some of it back to some of the students, for instance, who have loans or to those who are willing to spend exorbitant amounts of money on um, renewable windows and, and energy, and you're going to give us discounts, and you call that generosity, making us spend money that we don't want to spend on green energy and electric vehicles and that kind of thing, and you're going to not take as much from us if we do that. It's a lose-lose for the citizens of the U.S. I mean, look what's going on in Europe right now. Are you aware of what's happening in Europe? Some of you are. Some of you are in Europe. Germany, for instance. It's going to be a cold winter, literally, in Germany. Their energy supply is way down, and their prices are crazy high. It's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be bad. And... They may not be the only European nation that suffers for this. But, oh, our overlords are so generous. Well, a day is coming when the fool will not be called noble and the rogue will not be spoken of as generous. For a spool, a spool? <laughs> I'm just getting ahead of myself all over the place today. A fool speaks nonsense. Have you heard any nonsense coming from our politicians recently? And his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, 
to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. I think it is hard for us, for some reason, it's hard for us to actually believe this is what our leaders are doing. But they are. There is clearly an agenda by those in leadership in most Western countries, I would say, to take more power. Uh, this whole green energy movement, if you do, if you need to read a book called Fossil Future by, is it Alex Epstein? I think it's Alex Epstein. Fantastic book. And he is, he's exposing all of this. And there's another guy named Michael Schellenberger who's written a book called Apocalypse Never. Two books I would highly recommend to you. These are not Christian men. These, these guys do not have an agenda for a Christian worldview. But they, both of them former liberals, have seen what's really happening with energy and what the governments are doing with energy. This whole green push and the renewable nonsense, it's all a sham, it's all a lie. And they are working to keep us under their control and to destroy the energy supply. And that's exactly what Isaiah is speaking of here. But someday, those kind of people will not be in power. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander. Even though the needy one speaks what is right. The poor person, the needy one, speaks what is right, but the, uh, the scoundrel in office here is uh, just slandering them. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. Someday, someday, that's going to happen. I see a comment here from Lon. Let's see, Lon, what, uh, what you have here? Maybe verse 1 is like the ruler over five cities and ten cities in the parables of the talents. Uh, could be. That would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? And the question is the timing. So typically that is interpreted as end times uh, after Jesus comes back, right? Depending on your eschatological view, that's, uh, you know, the millennium, uh, future millennium, if you're a pre-mill, or it's maybe something to do with the new earth, if you are a-mill or post-mill, which still raises all kinds of questions. Who are we ruling over because we tend to think of in the new earth there being only glorified saints right um, so are there going to be glorified saints ruling over other glorified saints in the new earth uh, if it's the millennium uh, in terms of a pre-mill view then it would be glorified saints ruling over non-glorified saints. That raises the whole question of um, what happens when Jesus comes back. And if that's resurrection of any sort, uh, who are those glorified saints? It, just all these questions, right? I, I, I don't want to get into it all. Now. We don't have time and there's just too many questions. And I still have lots of questions on every view, but uh, I think it's a good association you're making there, Lon. Uh, that just makes all kinds of head-scratching quandaries, queries in my mind. 
Anyway, again, let me just wrap up by uh, reminding us all that we can trust the Lord. He has declared the end from the beginning. And we are trying to sort out, I'm trying to sort out here, which of these things are still future for us, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm still working through that. But one thing we can be certain of as we come to decide that this, whatever prophecy is, is future, we can trust him because everything he has said about what's going to happen in the past has come to pass. And he says in both Testaments for all of his people for all time, don't trust in the government. Don't trust in wicked men. Trust in me. Right? Oh, ye of little faith, trust the Lord. Over and over again, Jesus said it to his disciples. Do you not trust me? Do you not trust me? So let's be better than them. And let's learn from history and trust the Lord no matter what happens. It's a good day. The Lord Jesus made today. It's a good day. Rejoice. Be glad. And trust in him. And uh, look for good things. Have a great day. We will see you again tomorrow.